Now, it's time for the NSCAA College Soccer Podcast with Dean Linke. The National Soccer Coaches Association of America is the go-to resource for soccer coaches of any level. From advocacy, education, and networking, the NSCAA has something for everyone. Join the world's largest soccer coaches organization today. Now, here's our veteran soccer broadcaster, Dean Linke. Hello, NSCAA College Soccer Podcastees. I am Dean Linky, delighted to be with you and super excited about the news coming down from NSCAA Director of Marketing, Sean Chevro. We're going to keep the NSCAA podcast going right through the NSCAA convention in Los Angeles. And who knows, maybe even some more exciting podcast news after that. But for sure, thanks to Sean, NSCAA CEO Lynn Burley-Manuel, and Rob Kehoe for helping launch this program. It has been an honor and a delight for me to bring it to you each and every week of the college soccer season. And this show is starting to catch the attention of others. This week, I joined ESPN Radio's Over the Ball host, the very funny Kevin Flynn, to talk really about this podcast and the importance of college soccer. Kevin is a big fan of the college game, so it was great to feel his passion, and we thank him for having me on. Speaking of passion, here we go, folks. The 2016 Women's Division I College Cup is this weekend in San Jose. During this season of podcasts, we have talked to UNC's Anson Dorrance, West Virginia's Nikki Izzo-Brown, and Georgetown's Dave Nolan, all in the Final Four. The, the only coach in the 2016 Women's Division I College Cup that we haven't talked to is USC's Kadani McAlpine. So you guessed it, and you know it, he kicks off our program today. From there, Rob Kehoe sets the table for both the Women's D1 College Cup as well as the Men's D1 Elite Eight, and he sprinkles in some love for the championships at all the levels. We bounce from Rob back to D1 Men's Soccer as the Elite Eight is set. Louisville's Kenny Lola, Stanford's Jeremy Gunn, Wake Forest's Bobby Muse, Denver's Jamie Franks, Providence's Craig Stewart are five of the coaches in the Elite Eight. We have talked to all five of them. That leaves UNC's Carlos Samuano, Clemson's Mike Noonan, and Virginia Tech's Mike Brizendine. And we welcome both Mikes, Noonan and Brizendine, to today's show. We all know it takes great players to make great teams. And speaking of great players, the 2016 Mac Herman semifinalists have been announced. We will talk about that list and talk to a former winner, Jason Gary, who won the award in 2005, the same year Maryland won the national championship, and he joins me. We keep it rolling with a look at both of the men's and women's D2 championships, which take place this weekend at the Swope Soccer Village in Kansas City, Missouri. I'm proud to say we have talked to all four of the men's coaches in the D2 tournament and three of the four coaches in the women's Final Four. The only one missing is Cootstown's Eric Bernstein, and he joins me. When we go to D3, don't judge me, but the Brandeis judges have teams in both the men's and women's D3 Final Four taking place this weekend in Salem, Virginia, and we are joined by both of their coaches, 37-year head coach of the women's team, Denise Delamora, and 44-year head coach of the men's team, Michael Coven, are both on. How about Brandeis and how about these coaches it was tough getting intel out of Denise Delamoro, but Michael Coven more than made up for it for the judges. We wrap with a quick update on the NAIA, and we have you covered from top to bottom men's and women's college soccer. You know, when this NSCAA college soccer podcast is all over this year, we will have talked to nearly 100 college coaches. How cool is that? Speaking of cool, Kadani McAlpine, the head coach 
for the University of Southern Cal Women of Troy has the Trojans in the College Cup in just his third year in Los Angeles. He joins me off the top after this message. The NSCAA is 75 years strong and continues to provide quality service and benefits to soccer coaches. Whether you're a youth, high school, college, or professional coach, the NSCAA works to be a voice for you. Speaking of voice, once again, here's Dean Linky. And we kick things off in a big way talking women's D1 College Cup. And as we told you in the open, we have talked to three of the four coaches in the College Cup, Dave Nolan at Georgetown, the legendary Anson Dorrance back in it again from UNC. Nikki Izzo-Brown, whose West Virginia Mountaineers have been pretty much number one the entire way. And what a job Kadani McAlpine has done at USC. Southern Cal, they're just heading up north to San Jose. And Kadani joins me now. Kadani, a pleasure to be with you here as we start the show, the NSCA College Soccer Podcast. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Well, we're delighted to be with you because your story is phenomenal. In just three years, you've got your team in the College Cup. Here's a guy from Alabama. Uh, you know, <laughs> I love it. We can't wait to break down your story as a player. But did you ever think it was going to happen this fast, Coach? No way. No way. There's no way you can you – can, uh anticipated it happened this this fast but we had a plan and, and we had hoped to have a a nice run this year and and fortunate enough to make it to the college cup well i like hearing about your plan and even your sid talking about you know hey first year was about culture second year was about playing style and third year it's the college cup so talk about what she means by that the culture that you wanted to bring into this program yeah, you know, fortunately, I was at Washington State before coming here, so I played against the team and, and recognized the names and seen the talent on the roster. And and as you watch them play, you know, you could tell there was just a little something missing uh, in the group. So once we got here, we we just decided that we needed to kind of re- restore some confidence. They had finished tenth and eleventh in the Pac-12 the previous two seasons, and and uh, we're just you know they had lost their way a bit, and so we just talked about. The, the discipline and little detail things, competing, uh, just learning to scrap again and, and fight and claw. And, and uh, fortunately enough, we were able to uh, get to the NCA again in that first year, finishing fourth in the pack. So just kind of restored a little confidence in the group. Here's the great thing about the NSCA College Soccer Podcast and Mike Noonan also. He started at D3. You played in the NAIA for Birmingham Southern, and we've covered NAIA every single week of this program. And you were a big-time player, but talk about your time as a player at Birmingham Southern. Birmingham Southern was awesome for me. Um, you know, when I when I got there, the program – uh, it, it was good. It was stable, and all those things. But we we had a, a group of guys come through in, in my time there that kind of really elevated the program. We we uh, ended my last two years in in uh, the NAI version of the the College Cup. Um, both years losing in the semifinal in one and losing in the final in my last year. So um, great experience. And, and you know, NAI you could play you could play year round. So we played a little uh, USISL on, on the side in, in the uh, off season. So great learning experience, especially for a young guy out of Alabama to play with great players from all over the country and all over the world. All right, before we get into your coaching track, though, I love that you earned a bachelor's degree in music business with a minor in computer science. I think about that, that bachelor's degree in music business, now you're living in L.A. I mean, you can always <laughs> dabble in that a little bit, Coach. I wouldn't mind uh, doing some voiceovers or something, but uh, I'm definitely a full-time coach doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Okay, so talk about that. You mentioned a little bit of time with Tennessee Rhythm, but 
What um, what made you say, hey, I want to get into coaching and, and give us that path, including your time at Auburn and then Washington State? Yeah, well, well, while I was at um, Birmingham Southern, the women's program started, and uh, you know, Coach Shepard wasn't able to go out and uh, or Edgar Shepard wasn't able to go out and recruit enough players, so some of the girls wanted to um, just try out. So I was helping them out, and little did I know Coach Eka Shepherds was watching. So when I graduated, I went home, started coaching my little sister's team, called her up and said, hey, I'd love to come down and play. And she said, yeah, and by the way, I've got a part-time job. So that's how it started. And then uh, through my time there, she made me full-time. We had a great run, and then she decided to retire. She said, you know what, you're going to take over this program. And that was at, right at the time where we were mo- moving from um, NAI to Division One. During my time, new president, new chairman of the board decided to go D3. Phone rang right on time. Auburn called and Coach Hopper called. And, and a great call. Spent six years there just, you know, growing with the program. We, we had uh, great runs to the NCAA every year and, and just couldn't quite step into the Sweet 16. But we had really great runs. My last year there, we, we won the SEC tournament. And then my phone rang again and uh, off to Washington State fortunately enough as an assistant to get a job like that with the team that were coming off a, a good run and, and uh, the, 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 they were just steady and consistent. It was, it was really fortunate to get that group and we just added a little bit to them and, and made another great run, finished second in the Pac-12 in my second year and then my phone rang again and here I am at SC. Talk about that decision because, you know, it's never easy when you switch schools within the same conference. Was that, was that tough for you or was that just part of the process, Coach? No, that was hard. I mean, you know, I'm a big, I'm a big believer in, in creating uh, families and not just teams. And, and uh, you know, it's hard to, to step in front of your, your family and say, hey, um, this is a tough decision. This is a hard decision. Um, it's not just a soccer decision. It's a life decision. Um, and I think it's the right one for me. Um, you know, I love you and uh, I wish the best for you. And I, I hope that you will continue to, to use some of the things that we've done together. But this is the right move for me. And, and just like for you, I would hope that you, you'll understand as I make that move. But um, they were great. Um, I still talk to many of them, and, and they've been supportive. The, I will I will admit that the first, the, the very first time we played them back in Pullman that very next year was difficult. I was yelling out names from both teams. Uh, <laughs> it, it was awkward, but um, no, they've been great. They, they were great kids, great family, great people up there. I, I, I do miss the people. Um, and I'm very fortunate to have had that time up there. Speaking of family, you may have done the same thing last weekend, though, when you faced Karen Hoppe and Auburn. <laughs> and I know you met him in the regular season, but to play him in a win-or-go-home type deal, that had to have been tough, Coach. Uh, yeah, that was that was um, bittersweet all the way around. I, I said it after the game, but I, I, there wasn't a better weekend to do it if you had to do it. Thanksgiving weekend, um, all about family, all about you know just being together with, with a lot of people that you care about and that senior class was I was part of that last recruiting class, so they were re- really, really important to me. I mean, a couple of my coaches youth as well, so um, special group, but Karen and, and her longevity, her consistency and, and the way she builds a program, um, and then the way she's continued to elevate it um, is, is just impressive. and so it, it hurt in a way because you know how much work and time she's put in and, and but at the same time with with the group that I'm with it was it's important to kind of give them my best as well so um bittersweet for sure speaking of family we understand that uh you've got an incredibly supportive family i think both your parents might be professors you can correct me if i'm wrong on that but you had a pretty solid upbringing coach 
Uh, without question. Uh, my, my dad's longtime uh, professor administrator at, at Alabama A&M University in Huntsville. My mom, secondary ed, um, high school English. Um, they, they, they made sure I was involved in any and everything that I could be in just to, to, to uh, just broaden my horizons and, and, and make me give me the opportunity to do what I really wanted to do and what I love to do. So um, they, they supported me all the way. They continue to. Um, and and they've, they've been that way throughout. So it, it's uh, I'm, I'm definitely blessed in that regard. We've talked to a few African-American coaches during this year. Russell Payne definitely kind of wanted to speak out as well about uh, the role of African-American coaches, you know, right now and in, in mm-hmm. getting more opportunities. What's your take on that topic, Coach? Well, you know, I'm 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 one of two in the Big Five conferences um, head coaches. I take it personally that it's important for me to do well and and be here and and. Uh, continue to grow, so I, I take that personally to, that challenge on um, to to try to make sure that we continue to have people out here doing it and and hopefully reach back and and can continue to pull people along and, and give them encouragement and information on on how to take steps and how to continue to grow both African Americans and and I think young women in the game as well. So um, I think it's I think it's a very very important thing. But as much as as much as it's um, important for me, I, I think. It's it's almost even more important for some of these kids out here to see us here and, and doing it. That's so well said. And with that, I love the story behind your connection with this team on important issues, important social issues, including the Colin Kaepernick stance and what he decided to do and your team's decision to have some of the players kneel just a little bit. I don't think mm-hmm. that's exactly what you wanted them to do, but you at least encouraged some dialogue. Tell us about that. Yeah, we uh, a couple of them approached uh, the staff and said, hey, this is what we'd like to do. And, and uh, of course, we, we ran it through our administration. And um, the, the, the consistent message is if there's ever a place and time in your life to, to, to follow your your thoughts and, and your heart. Um, college is a place to explore those things. And so we sat down as a team, and I thought it was important that, that we hashed it out and let everybody get their message out. And, and uh, whether we agree or not wasn't really wasn't really the issue. I, I thought it was important to have the dialogue. And, and ultimately, that's what Kaepernick's message was about, to, to increase dialogue and, and, and create change. And so we had a really heartfelt, teary, teary-eyed, emotional discussion. And um, when we finished, uh, I, I, I thought the women were prepared. It wasn't haphazard. They, they pick and chose the, the game that they wanted to do it in. They, they were very deliberate, trying to not take away from the group. Um, but at the same time, they felt it was important to, to be in um, support of the the issue out there so uh and and i i shared some thoughts of my own and and especially being an african-american and and growing up in alabama and and um having had some some interesting experiences in my life but um the the best part about it was the team had the discussion had the unity even though not everyone agreed and i think it's important to say they locked in that they supported the people the best part about it is i think that's what it was a great representation of what this country's made of. Um, we we do have the right to have this, you know, differing opinions, and it was probably one of the best games we played in terms of our connection. The day they decided to kneel and and stood in solidarity um, behind each other, 
um, in, in what they believed in. And you do have the right to be successful. And the women of Troy are in <laughs> the College Cup. You're rocking and rolling. You can advance to the final game with USC and win the first championships in 2007 if you do what this weekend? We've, we've got to play two really solid games, uh, be sound in our defending like we have been, um, and, and, and really take care of the ball. Um, but more importantly, we just got to stay together and unified, and 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 just stay light, not get too not not get too caught up in the moment, and, and just enjoy it. Uh, this team has great energy, great team spirit, and we're talented, and, and we've been together all year, and, and we've seen a lot of the talent out there, and played a lot of teams, so we've got some experience. But we, we take no team lightly. Um, everybody here has earned it, and they they are all of them are on a roll. From Alabama to the bright lights of Los Angeles, how much are you enjoying the L.A. Hollywood scene, Coach? Uh, you know what? I'm enjoying the beach scene a whole lot more. It's it's, it's a little bit more my pace. <laughs> no, it's been it's been great. I, I, some experiences that I never thought I'd have. To be honest, I didn't necessarily want to live in L.A. Coming up, uh, yeah, I enjoyed I enjoyed um, where I live. But L.A.'s been great. The people here have been great, and uh, you know we we hope to continue to to grow this thing and and just enjoy um, the family that we're building here. Coach, your story is amazing. Shame on me for taking so long to talk to you. I got to admit, part of the reason was I wasn't sure how to say your name. So (laughs) as a broadcaster, I had to get that straight. But man, now that I got it, you are a delight, a true success story. And listen, we're going to be pulling for you. Great way to start this week's show. Thanks for being with us, Coach. Thanks so much for having me. When you join the National Soccer Coaches Association of America, you join a community who live and breathe the beautiful game just like you do. You join a network of individuals who share many of the same issues, concerns, and questions as you. The NSCAA is dedicated to serving coaches at every level of the game in a number of ways through advocacy, education, and service. Be a part of the coaching community. Learn more and join at NSCAA.com. So great to have Rob Kehoe on last week. Want to keep that energy going as we welcome Rob back. Rob, thanks for being with us. Always good to be with you, Dean. Rob, as director of college programs for the NSCAA, you're involved in all aspects of college soccer throughout the year, including legislation, playing rules, rankings, and promotion of the game, to name a few. And I know you love it all, but I just have to think that this time of year has to be very special for you as we head toward the season's finish line and the national championships for all divisions. Yes, Dean, this is a very special time of the year, and I should say one of two very special times. As The first very special time is when all 2,800-plus teams with high hopes get out of the gate in August on pristine fields, looking good in their new uniforms and summer tans, and they're prepared for the competition tests of heart, mind, and body. And now, having been tested over three months, we have junior college national champions recently crowned, we have 28 of approximately 2,000 NCAA Division One, Two, and Three men's and women's teams, and 32 of about 200 NAI teams taking their final exams, both on the field and preparing for the same in the classroom. The NAI championships are being played this week in Delray Beach, Florida, for the men, and Orange Beach, Alabama, for the women. The NCAA Division Three championships are in Salem, Virginia, at Roanoke College. The two teams will compete in NSCA home turf right here in Kansas City at Swope Park. And for the Division I, eight men's teams are still trekking upwards with the intent of climbing to the heights in Houston. And as for the last team standing on the Division I women's side, 
they are literally on their way to San Jose. And there at beautiful Avaya Stadium, they'll determine who will become the last team smiling holding the national championship hardware. What a great setup, and what a week and weekend to look forward to, Rob. And I'll be giving a rundown to the final exam series during the show. But since you oversee the Division One national rankings and keep a close eye on many of the fine details of that division, can you share with us an inside-the-numbers Rob Kehoe look at Division One that our listeners always enjoy? Absolutely. As I'm always interested in the inside-the-numbers view and perspective, uh, this is always a special time. On the Division One men's side, with eight teams remaining, we could end up with four conferences being represented in the climb to the heights of the College Cup in Houston, or we could have an ACC tournament phase two with four teams qualifying for the final weekend. One ACC team is guaranteed to make it to Houston, but to break up the monopoly, I'm sure that Denver, Providence, and Stanford have sites set on crashing that party. On the women's side, we do have four conferences represented, which offers some different flavor to the College Cup, with number one ranked West Virginia from the Big 12, Georgetown from the Big East, USC from the Pac-12, and not seen for a while in the Final Four is the Sky Blue from North Carolina and the ACC. Also interesting, in last week's round of 16 for the men and round of eight for the women, in 12 games there were only two overtimes, and neither of those ended in PK shootouts. That is somewhat unusual for this stage of the tournament. Additionally, home turf was defended in eight of the 12 games, meaning that four teams seemed to uh, miss the menu on it's tough to win away from home or on the road. And that being Virginia Tech, Providence, and North Carolina men and the Tar Heel women, all who escape foreign soil with wins. However, what isn't unusual at this stage of the tournament with high stakes and high demand is that the margins are slim. And in the 12 games last weekend, 10 were decided by one goal, and six of those games were decided by 1-0 scores, including all four of the women's quarterfinal games. Great stuff, Rob. How about a snapshot of the individual games and themes you may have seen throughout the weekend? Well, first, the most important theme that comes to mind is from the women's side, and that is score early and hold on. USC scored against Auburn in the fourth minute and then held on for the next 86 minutes in the game that was about dead even in statistics and shots, corners, and saves. UNC got a goal from freshman Madison Schultz in the 22nd minute, which incidentally is her fifth game winner in the last eight games. And then they weathered the South Carolina challenging challenge, including a rocket off the upper 90 crossbar and post, as well as eight saves by fifth-year senior goalkeeper Lindsey Harris, including a PK save. So it was a special time for UNC to get out in the lead and then hold on. West Virginia scored in the 16th minute. We're fortunate that two of Duke's 17 shots found the crossbar, and then they kept a shutout, but defending strongly for the final 74 minutes to persevere in its 17th shutout of the season. In the Georgetown-Santa Clara game, both were tough defensively, with Georgetown getting the break in the 76th minute on a goal from graduate student Crystal Thomas. I'm sure she's happy that she extended her playing career beyond completing her undergraduate studies. On the men's side, there were multiple themes. The first is chase and hold on. 
in the Virginia Tech versus Indiana game and the Providence and Creighton games. Virginia Tech went up early, and IU even the score and added pressure out shooting Virginia Tech 24-8 to with nine corners to zero for Virginia Tech throughout the remainder of the game. However, bolstered by nine Ben Lundgaard saves, Virginia Tech persevered and got the game winner in the 97th minute. At Creighton, the host and Providence were at 1-1 after 21. Providence then broke through in the 83rd from a goal by Danny Griffin, and then Colin Miller kept Creighton off the board for the second goal with nine saves off Creighton's 20 shots compared to nine shots for Providence. The second theme is track meet in two games with up-and-down action, and these were Stanford versus Virginia and Denver against Washington. Stanford and Virginia went up and down the field for 105 scoreless minutes, with Stanford outshooting the Hoos 17-9. Virginia pressured also, though, with eight corner kicks to only one for the Cardinal. Finally, at 106 in the second overtime, Foster Lansdorf finished off the event with a game winner. At Denver, the shots were 17-16 to and corner 7-6 in favor of visiting Washington, but Denver went up 2-0 with Washington get, getting one back in the 77th minute, but they could never get the equalizer. The third theme is one-way traffic as Wake Forest had the best of gritty SIU Edwardsville, as did Clemson against Albany. Wake Forest outshot Southern Illinois at Edwardsville 22-7, to had nine corners to one for the visitors, and they got two goals from John Baccaro to advance to round four. Clemson benefited from two Austin Bernickel goals in a game that was 1-1 until the 81st minute, and then Clemson separated at 81 and 84 with their second and third goals. The final theme is tough to separate at both Louisville and versus Notre Dame and UNC at Syracuse. Louisville and Notre Dame were about even in statistics, but the home team was able to produce three goals on eight shots, including a true clincher in the 90th minute for a 3-1 win over the Fighting Irish. And finally at Syracuse, North Carolina was on the mark, putting nine of their ten shots on goal, with orange keeper Hendrick Hilpart saving eight of them with the one goal that got past him being scored by Tar Heels, Jeremy Kelly in the 32nd minute. Jeremy Kelly from St. Thomas More in Chapel Hill, where the Linkies went to school, as well as Cardinal Gibbons. So love that shout-out. And he also played for the Railhawks this past year. Terrific summary of the exciting action, Rob. So what do you have to look forward to this weekend? Well, first of all, the College Cup in San Jose at Avaya Stadium has in the opening round games first-time College Cup Team West Virginia, number one ranked. They go in at 21 and two. As I mentioned earlier, they have 17 shutouts and they face the very familiar to the College Cup scene, UNC Tar Heels. Although this is somewhat unusual, the Tar Heels have not been to the College Cup since 2012. This is their 27th appearance in the semifinals, but again, the first since 2012. And equally unusual is that only two of the North Carolina players have ever played in a Final Four, where in previous years, every North Carolina player almost every year played in a College Cup. Also, on the North Carolina side, in their last eight games, they've only conceded one goal, and they have 
five straight shutouts. So that appears to be something that is staging up to be a very, very strong defensive battle. And then you have USC returning to the College Cup for the first time since 2007. They come in with a 17-4-2 record out of the Pac-12, and they'll face first-timers Georgetown that comes in at 22-3. And And I know they're very excited to trek from the East Coast to the West Coast to be at San Jose after beating what could have been the host, Santa Clara, last weekend in Washington, D.C. On the men's side, you've got Providence, who is not unfamiliar with competing in the College Cup, recently getting to the semifinals in North Carolina. They'll go to North Carolina to face the Tar Heels at UNC in Chapel Hill. Clemson will host Denver, and it's going to be interesting to see if Denver can keep their run going. They're now at 19-0-2, and as we both have talked about, and I know you had Jamie on the call or on the podcast a number of weeks ago they've only lost one game in the last two years and we'll just see if they can go down there and compete with the uh, Clemson Tigers and escape there with a win then you've got Louisville hosting Stanford and Stanford looking to repeat with a visit to the College Cup after being champions last year and then you've got Virginia Tech going over to Wake Forest where at Spry Stadium, Wake Forest is very tough. Virginia Tech has been gritty going through the playoffs uh, and looking for Wake Forest and, and Virginia Tech to be a good match. And that's the, the matchups for the weekend, which should be very exciting for college soccer. Incredible breakdown, Rob. Love your intel inside the numbers. A lot of the coaches that you mentioned as well are going to be on the program today. Rob, thanks for being with us. Very good, Dean. Look forward to catching up after the weekend. The 2017 NSCAA convention will be unlike any before. Taking over the downtown Los Angeles Convention Center January 11th through 15th. Network with over 11,000 peers at one of the education sessions, the extensive exhibit hall, or one of many social functions, including the college coaches reception and the All-American Luncheon. With more space and unique experiences, you won't want to miss out on the largest gathering of soccer coaches and administrators in the world. Register today at NSCAA.com. I want to thank Rob Kehoe, the NSCA Director of College Programs, for going inside the numbers of the Women's Final Four and the Men's Elite Eight. And as I told you at the start of the show, there's eight teams remaining. And of those eight teams, we've talked to everybody except UNC's Carlos Samuano and a couple Mikes. Mike Noonan and Mike Brizendine. And now we're joined by the seven-year head coach of the Clemson Tigers, who, by the way, went to the College Cup Final a year ago before losing to Jordan Morris and the Stanford Cardinal talking about our good friend Mike Noonan. Mike, thanks for being with us. No problem, Dean. How are you? I'm doing great, Mike, and uh, I'm sure you're doing great as well. Never gets old winning, particularly winning when it counts because it's win or go home time. You made that run last year. You lost some key players as well right down the spine. We'll get to that in a moment, but here you back in the Elite Eight. How are you feeling about your team, Coach? No, I'm really, really happy. I, it's, uh, it's a different team for sure, but we found different ways to, to continue our success, and, uh, and we're excited about Friday night for sure. Okay, Mike, remind us who you lost from last year and where those players are because a lot of them are playing professionally. We had five players all signed professional contracts last year. 
Four of them were drafted. Uh, Andrew Tarbell is with San Jose in the MLS right now. Kyle Fisher is playing tonight with uh, with Montreal Impact. Paul Close uh, was drafted by DC United and has recently signed a contract with Orlando. And then TJ Kasner was drafted by Houston, played on their USL team, and has now uh, been invited back into the first team camp for this year. And Kyle Murphy also uh, he went undrafted but played all year and signed a contract with the uh, with the same team down there in Houston, the Rio Grande team in the USL. So all five of those guys, the goalkeeper, the center back, the center midfielder, the center, and two center forwards, have had a great deal of success at the next level. So. Um, we've had to replace them, and, and the guys have done well to get to this point. Yeah, that's the spine of your team. So not only did you have to reload, you had to look at an ACC conference that's, I mean, it's always good, but it might be better than it's ever been this year. How hard was it to kind of get through that minefield? It, 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 no matter it, it just keeps coming. It's like, you know, being in a 15-round uh, heavyweight fight. You know, the punches just Every weekend, you're going to get another one. You're going to get another one. And, uh, and But it's great, you know, in terms of preparing players to play at the next level, in terms of facilities and, and just great competition and, and coaching and, and the camaraderie that, that we have within the league. It's a, it's a fantastic league to be involved in and to compete in every week. Well, I love your path because, including time at Wheaton College, here's the deal with the NSCA College Soccer Podcast, Mike. If you heard it at all, we don't just talk D1 soccer. We talk D2, D3, junior college, NAIA, all of it. And you've touched a little bit of that, right, when you are at Wheaton and then you moved on, of course, but also an assistant coach at Bates College. Talk about uh, your path to this point, to Clemson and the ACC, including your time at Brown. Well, I, I'm a product of uh, Division Three, so I went to Middlebury College in in had a great experience there, um, and I tell kids all the time, you know, everybody's got their stars in their eyes about playing D1 and in the ACC, and, you know, when I was at Middlebury, the Amherst or the Williams game was just as big as the Clemson-South Carolina game is to the players here, so it's finding the right place and the right fit, and the and the roots uh, and being able to play collegiate soccer is, is something that, you know, will always be a memory, and, and I have some of my greatest friends as a result of it. Um, you know, Realized after a short professional career that was injury riddled that uh, that my passion was teaching and uh, in the game and so I was fortunate enough to uh, to get mentored by Ron McEachin and some great people at the NSCAA Mike Berselli Jeff Tipping um, and and found my found my way uh, into the coaching world uh, I got my first head coaching job at Wheaton College. I uh, was there for a short time and then went up to the University of New Hampshire, which was a fantastic uh, five years, and then on to Brown. I thought I'd be at Brown for two or three years. I was there for 15 years before uh, we made the move down south here to Clemson to try and help resurrect this program. Your best memory at Brown and how that prepared you to take this big job at Clemson? My best memory at Brown is, is really still the, the people and the players. I think that's always the way with coaches. Uh, the, the quality of the people uh, at Brown and the players that we were able to attract and then to watch them also go on and play professional soccer but be professional in so many different ways and the, the connections and the contacts that we had. Um, we had some great games. You know, Coach Yeagley brought Indiana out and, uh, you know, we beat Duke in an NCAA uh, Sweet 16, there was, I think we went to the quarterfinals a couple times, lost to UConn, who was the eventual national champion, lost to Maryland, who was the eventual national champion. But, you know, people like Tommy McNamara, who's now playing at uh, 
New York City FC. You know, he's a Brown guy. Everybody remembers him from coming to Clemson for the one year, but he's actually a Brown guy. And, uh, you know, that that was the key to, to our success is, is the quality of people and, and you know, just, just great experiences up there in Providence. So 15 years at Brown, what do you remember about the process of getting the job at Clemson, the phone call, the interview? Break it down. <laughs> well, uh, the phone call came – uh, ironically, we were having a pretty good year uh, up at Brown, and the phone call came in late September, and I basically didn't. Uh, I told Kyle Young that uh, I was flattered with the interest, but at, at this point I was concentrating on my Brown team, and uh, and that's what I did. I said, when the season's over, if you haven't filled the position, I'd be happy to talk to you about that uh, at that time. And so... Uh, you know, it, funny, two days later, uh, Clemson was playing Boston College up at Boston College, and then the following day we were playing Harvard. And there was an inkling in me to go up and, and take a look at the Clemson team, which I didn't do because I was too busy preparing for the Harvard game. <laughs> um, so, you know, I knew of their interest. The season finished. I think we went to the round of 16 in the NCAA tournament. And lo and behold, Kyle called again and said, you know, would you be interested uh, in, in coming down and taking a look. And uh, at that point, uh, you know, I loved everything at Brown. I had a great boss I was working for, and my father's always told me the time to look for a job is when you got a great job. So I came down uh, and, and visited, brought my wife down, and ironically at the same time Syracuse had an opening, and, and I was in the mix for the Syracuse job, and my wife said, uh, which orange do you like better? <laughs> and I said, I'm not making the decision. You're making the decision. And she said, Brown. <laughs> so in the end, uh, really what it was is that we were raising a young family, and uh, we had two young daughters, and her parents lived close by, my mom was close by, and we were kind of relying on our in-laws and, and, and parents to, to help us raise our kids, and we decided that we needed a, we needed a new adventure. So we came got out of our comfort zone, came down south because we'd been in New England our whole lives, and uh, really, really happy that we did. We've had a great experience here at Clemson. Well, we started talking about that run last year, or more, I guess, talking about the players you lost from that run, but talk about how special it was last year. What do you remember about that run to the College Cup Final? Again, the, the players, um, the, again, in the character of the young men, Andrew Tarbell, and, and you know, the, these guys, not only were we uh, in the College Cup Final, but we had a, a GPA of a 3.5 on the team. We had, you know, 17 different majors. Uh, you know, guys with 4.0s. It's just fantastic group of players. But the fans here at Clemson were incredible um, all throughout the run. Uh, our game against Maryland was thrilling. Uh, we hadn't been to the Final Four. I had never been to the Final Four. Nobody on my team had. Um, and uh, we, Maryland went up early. We equalized in the second half and kind of were pushing for the winning goal. It went to penalties, and when Talis Moreno hit that penalty to win it, it just it was an incredible feeling, incredible feeling. Okay, so now you'll make it back to another college cup against a team that never loses in Denver if you do what? <laughs> if we score some goals and they don't score as many. Amen. Because uh, nobody seemed to do that to them so far this year. They are a, they are a fierce uh fiercely competitive team um we've got to play exceptionally well uh probably we'll have to play our best game defensively they're as sound as any team that we've played 
Um, they've got a lot of different weapons. They can get at you in different ways and uh, in very well-coached and organized teams. So, you know, it, it'll probably be a one-goal game. Uh, it's going to be tight. Uh, but, you know, I like our chances. Uh, our guys are, are peaking, I think, at the right time, Dean. All right, let's have some fun. I uh, had the great pleasure of being on uh, ESPN Radio's Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, one of the funniest people I ever met. He's a movie star as well, and I love his movies, uh, particularly the one with Ben Stiller, one of my favorite movies of all time. But you know Kevin very well. He mentioned your name yesterday during the interview. Kevin's one of my best friends, and, uh, and and probably because I can't make people laugh, and he makes everybody laugh. So, you know, opposites attract, and uh, it's one of those things. And, you know, we played together in the in the indoor leagues and uh, played a kick to each other when he was at UMass, and uh, and I was up in Middlebury, and, you know, our – our paths cross as we set up the uh, the old indoor league, and we've been we've been great friends ever since. And you know, he went off to do uh, comedy, and then obviously go into uh, uh, major motion pictures and, and stand up. And, and but he always had this passion for soccer, and always always trying to combine that passion, the two passions together. And he's found uh, found a great way of doing that uh, over at ESPN right now. And uh, you know, we stay in touch. You know, probably every week, every every couple weeks. And the Noonan name is a great one out there, not just because of Caddyshack, by the way, but also your brother was a big-time player with Major League Soccer for quite some time, right? Yeah, that's that's one of the things we're, we're still chasing. He won the national championship with Duke back in 1986, yep. and he keeps waving that ring every Christmas, and uh, <laughs> we haven't gotten one yet, so we're we're still chasing that ring, and, you know, Mark's got a great, uh, is, was involved with U.S. Soccer as their marketing director, and then Major League Soccer in their infancy through the first, like, 10 years um, as their marketing director, went on and had a very successful uh, private business in, in sports marketing, and uh, currently he is the executive uh, vice president for marketing for the World Surf League, and uh, he's having a blast chasing around all the beautiful places of the world with beautiful people and, you know, watching sharks bite surfers. <laughs> Oh, that's pretty neat. What about the Noonan from Caddyshack? Do you hear that very often? Coach, be honest with me. Oh, too often, to be honest with you. <laughs> it's, I, I think it, from that movie, it's become that nobody around here even refers to me as Mike or Coach. It's always Noonan. Noonan, <laughs> Noonan. So you get used to it. You get used to it. I remember uh, when I was playing in the indoor league in, in, in uh, Milwaukee. We used to play in the old uh, auditorium that was right next to the uh, the Civic Center there, and it was two stories. And whenever the ball would come to me, the lower part would yell Noonan, and the upper part would say Miss It. So it was uh, it Caddyshack lives with us. I love it, Coach. I love the fact you dropped some big-time names from the NSCAA as well right off the top, and obviously this is brought to you by the NSCAA. What's that organization meant to you, Coach? No, I think it's the best coaching organization in the world of any sport. Um you know, we've had great leadership and currently under Lynn Burling Manual and, you know, the the coaching academy, academy which I've been uh, a big part of, and, and, and Ian Barker and Tip before him and Burt before him, uh, it's it's brought up some of the best coaches in the country and, uh, you know, including our current national team coach. So uh, very proud of the organization, not just from a coaching standpoint, but what they do for players, the game, and in all parts of our uh, all parts of a great game here in, in the U.S., something college, we, we should be very proud of. I love it, Coach. College Cup final a year ago. On your way to another College Cup if you can get by Denver. Thanks for being a part of the NSCA College Soccer Podcast, Coach. And good luck against Denver. Thanks, Dean, and thanks for all you do for the NSCA and for all of us in college soccer. 
The NSCAA is 75 years strong and continues to provide quality service and benefits to soccer coaches. Whether you're a youth, high school, college, or professional coach, the NSCAA works to be a voice for you. Speaking of voice, once again, here's Dean Linky. I want to thank Mike Noonan, the fine head coach at Clemson, for being with us. And we told you this was going to be the show of Mike's. Michael Coven was also on. And why not Mike Brizendine, making seven of the eight elite coaches now a part of the NSCAA College Soccer Podcast. Mike Brizendine, the eight-year head coach at Virginia Tech. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I had the pleasure of calling your game on the Big Ten Network on Sunday in Bloomington, Indiana. You went in there. You didn't back down. You had a plan of attack, and it worked. You walked out of Bloomington with a big win for your program. Your first time in the NCAA tournament, and here you are in the Elite Eight. Talk about that game in Bloomington and this run. It's been pretty special. Yeah, I mean, that game, um, it was kind of all over the place. I thought that uh, they got on top of us early, and in that, you know, against the run of play, we score a goal. And then after that, I thought we calmed down a little bit. We got into more of our rhythm. And then the last uh, last couple of minutes, I thought they got on top of us again. So going into halftime, 1-0, we were happy with our position, but we knew that it was going to be a dogfight the second half. And one of the things I told the guys is, look, no matter what happens, keep your composure. Um, because, again, I knew what the second half was going to be like as far as intensity and us trying to uh, keep our lead there. And, uh, and then second half, they were all over us. You know, they tied the game. I mean, they had to exert a lot of energy, I think, to do that. And look, and then after they scored, I thought that, that we kind of regained our composure a little bit and at least made it more of a back-and-forth game. And then in overtime, look, Forrest scored a great goal uh, to give us the win. And it was, um, yeah, it's a, it's a great way to, to win a game with a special goal like that. It, it was awesome. Amazing goal. Forrest White, who... You know, he's been a key player on your team, but, you know, hasn't played a ton of minutes. And his first goal of this season, what a perfect time to get one, right? Yeah, excellent. Excellent time. So talk a little bit about uh, the last seconds of regulation, though, because this young man, Marcelo Acuna, is the real deal. 11 goals, and he smoked one off the crossbar, one of the greatest shots I've seen all year. You know, it was one of those situations where everybody thought, hey, the half is over. And he picked up a ball, you know, freed up some space. You know, again, Marcel is not afraid to shoot a ball. Yeah, and he ripped it. And I think the, the keeper hit it, you know, pushed it up a little bit into the crossbar. If not, I think that might have been a goal, which, again, would have been a great way to, to finish that game. But, uh, again, we, <laughs> well, we were hoping for that to, to go in. I can assure you that. Well, let's talk about your journey because it's an interesting one and one filled with, I think, patience, which has to be a virtue of yours. And we'll get into that as it relates to your time at Virginia Tech. But before that, you played at James Madison for one of the legendary soccer coaches of all time, Dr. Tom Martin, one of the all-time winningest coaches. What was that experience like? Yeah, it was good. You know, we were uh, James Madison was uh, we were very good during that time in the mid '90s, and um, you know, I learned a lot. I met some great people, and I, I look back on that time with fond memories. Yeah, we won a lot of games, and, and we had fun doing it. So, which you know, that's the hope I guess of every college coach for their players is that they come in. Uh, they have some success. They meet some some great folks, and they learn and develop to be you know men that can uh, survive in this world. So I'm pretty sure you're a religion major, if I remember correctly. Tell us what happened after you left JMU and ended up at Virginia Tech. Yeah, so I kind of fell into being a religion major. I started off a business major, and uh, I made it through microeconomics, and then I went to macroeconomics, <laughs> and I realized that this isn't 
what I want to do because um, I'm not very good at it. And uh, during that time, my, during my second semester, in my first year, second semester, you know, I became a Christian, and I, so I started taking all these classes uh, that, that just intrigued me. And then I found out that I had so many that I might as well become a major in it. So, uh, yeah, so that's how I ended up as a religion major. And then um, as far as coaching, look how it worked out. And I believe in God and His providence over people. And, and I got engaged. I was, trying, I was thinking about playing soccer professionally. I went over to England, and I was supposed to go back. And I realized, you know, that's not what I wanted to do. And, um, you know, I, uh, I got engaged to my, my current wife, and uh, she had a year of school left at a Division three school called Farham College. And so um, I called the coach, and I said, hey, you know, this is kind of my playing, this is my playing background. Do you need any help? And at that time, he didn't need any help. And so I was like, yeah, that's fine. So I basically went down there with no idea what I was going to do, except for that I had a wife and that we were going to have some bills. So I needed to do something. And then I was on a missions trip just before we got married in August. And I get a call from my wife that the coach, their assistant had left. He took another job and then he had an opening. So, you know, I was in Mexico when I found out that uh, he wanted me to be his assistant. So I got married. We cut our honeymoon short and I went for a preseason. I guess that was August 17th. 90, 1999. And that's how I got into the business. And then I, uh, I got a job at Bridgewater College, which is up, back up in Harrisonburg in, a, in the area we knew well. After a couple of years there, again, an interesting story. You know, Oliver Weiss was here during that time. They, had, they, were, they were transitioning from Jerry Cheney, who'd been here for a long time. So Jerry was still on staff. So he was going to go off staff. They had another assistant here. And it's a state school, so you have to publicize that an assistant position is open. So I called him, um, and I knew him a little bit because we'd come up here and done some things uh, as far as playing soccer. And he, told, he tells me, look, I had to post that job, but we have our person. I said, I understand. Thanks for taking my phone call. He calls me back two days later and, and tells me that the assistant came in and said that he didn't want to take the position. He was going to do something else. So then I interviewed two weeks later, and the three people that interviewed for the job with myself, Scott Black, who actually ended up working with us and is now at Boston University, and then Chugger Adair, who's our women's soccer coach. We were the three finalists. So it's funny how we all came through uh, the interview process and then ended up here one, at one time or another. Well, that was a great breakdown of how you got there. Thank you so much for filling in the blanks, and particularly as you talked about God's providence leading you that way. And it's interesting you say that because when I first met you, it was part of a Fox Soccer Game of the Week with the NSCAA down in, I think, USF. I think you Florida. guys were playing, yep. yeah, you were playing George Kiefer's team down there. And I remember kind of being moved by your comments about the team and almost saying to me at the time, Mike, you were less concerned about wins and more concerned about growing fine young men. And obviously in the ACC, you also got to win some games, right? I mean, because it's so so competitive. So I got to believe over that time there's been that balance and now this run. But talk about how you prioritize what you said to me then and where you are today. Yeah, I mean, look, it, it still holds true. You've been around the game a lot. And I'm sure if you talk to all these coaches, you know, winning, losing, it's fleeting, right? So, you know, we'll have this great run and there'll be a, a time that we can enjoy it. But come January, it's time to start over again. You know, the cycle starts and, and with expectations and all that. But look, building character in the young men, those things aren't fleeting. Those things 
last. You see rewards 10 years down the road for that. Everyone does it with their own kids. One thing I tell parents during the recruiting process is, look, you're giving me young men, and by the time that they're done with me, they'll be men, and they're expected to live on their own and and take care of their own business. So we try to help them through that transition um, because, look, the success stories, uh, having MLS players and guys get drafted is awesome. There's no doubt. But success stories, in my opinion, are young men that are going out in the communities and, uh, you know, they're being uh, faithful husbands and dads and, uh, you know, helping our community. Uh, those are things that, you know, I get pumped up about. And so, uh, you know, that's kind of how I see things. Now, look, winning is a part of that, no doubt, and, and it helps people. Well, it helps team chemistry, there's no doubt about that. But, you know, as far as long-term thinking, that's, that's the way I see things. All right. Well, I'm glad you did recognize winning is a part of it because, let's face it, beating Wake Forest at Wake Forest is not going to be easy. On paper, perhaps the most talented team left in the Elite Eight. What does Virginia Tech have to do to, once again, kind of shock the nation? Because as I called it against the Hoosiers, you know, the Hokies, shock the Hoosiers. How do we call that the same way at Wake Forest? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I... uh... I don't think we're going to sneak up on Bobby and uh, and his boys there. So uh, we will have to play, obviously, unbelievable defense, which I'm confident that we can do. They have a couple of special, special players that we're going to have to contain. We're going to have to do a better job of possessing the ball. I mean, definitely a key piece. We, we can't endure that kind of pressure again from Wake Forest. So we, we need to keep the ball and, and add some more on them. I think we have a couple things that are gonna they're gonna cause them some issues. I'll be interested to see again. We didn't play them this year in, in one of our crossover games, so it's fun for us that it's a team in the ACC that we haven't seen. Um, even though again they won the championship, I know they're they're uber talented, but uh, but it'll be nice from that that standpoint that we haven't lined up against them. I love your principles. I love how you are grounded, Mike Brizendine. I got to admit, you moved me way back when, when you took over this job, and I wondered how it was going to go, and it just shows good things happen to good people. And I will say, I talked to Chris Dorn, my broadcast partner, last night, and you know, we went in there. We're caught up in the Hoosier hoopla. We've been broadcasting Big Ten games since 2007, yeah. the same year that you were in the uh, Final Four, by the way, uh, facing where Wake Forest was in there as well. I think that's who you played in the semifinals, and the <laughs> yeah, Buckeyes right. were there. But here's the deal. We were like, wait, early on, yeah, they're booming it long, but wait a second, these guys can play. They got a great left back. They got some guys in the middle of the park, and I felt like even even on the broadcast, we were like, whoa, this Virginia Tech team's pretty darn good. Yeah, I mean, again, I think that because some things some other teams have done, we haven't been in our rhythm. But, uh, yeah, I mean, look, if you watch some of our other games, you, you, you wouldn't call us a kickball team. We like to keep the ball. And uh, that's why I've been frustrated that we haven't. You know, we haven't been playing kind of with our same swagger. And it's the message that's been happening the last two days is, guys, we got to get back into doing what we do. But, you know, look, I'm playing with a bunch of a bunch of young players, you know, so trying to get them like, hey, come on, you have confidence. You can do this. I think that we'll get there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think they understand. I mean, you're already there. The Elite Eight is pretty incredible when you think about it. I mean, all the number of yeah. college teams, you're in the Elite Eight. Mike Brizendine, a pleasure to spend time with you on Sunday and even better to spend time with you here on the NSCA College Soccer Podcast. Good luck against Wake Forest in Winston-Salem on Saturday, and thanks for being part of the show. Yeah, I appreciate it. By being a member of the NSCAA, you are a part of the world's largest network of soccer coaches. Here, you can find like-minded people passionate about bettering themselves to help better their players and ultimately to better the game. 
The National Soccer Coaches Association of America announced on Tuesday the 15 men's semifinalists and 15 women's semifinalists in consideration for the 2016 Mack Herman Trophy based on voting by NCAA Division I soccer coaches. The Mack Herman Trophy, the most coveted individual honor in NCAA Division I soccer, has been awarded annually since 1967. Most recently, Jordan Morris from Stanford and now a star for the Seattle Sounders and Raquel Rodriguez from Penn State, who stars in the NWSL, received the award for outstanding intercollegiate performance during their 2015 seasons. Three men's finalists and three women's finalists will be named on December 14 at the conclusion of voting by NCAA Division I soccer coaches. The 2016 Mac Herman Trophy Banquet will be held at the Missouri Athletic Club in St. Louis on January 6, 2017 to formally announce this year's winners. For more information about the history of the Mac Herman Trophy, visit MacHermanTrophy.org. It's there and at NSCAA.com where you can see the 15 finalists for men and women respectively. So we thought it would be cool to talk to a former Mac Herman Trophy winner. And why not Jason Gary, who starred at Maryland he won the Mac Herman in 2005, the same year the Maryland Terrapins won their first national championship under Sasho Sarosky. And Jason joins me now. Jason, thanks for being with us. Great to be with you, Dean. I appreciate it. You tried to claim that you're old and it's past you, but trust me, people still care about what you accomplished because it was an amazing story. What do you remember about being in St. Louis at the Missouri Athletic Club winning that award in 2005? Yeah, I'm going back in the history books there, but I... Uh... I just remember it being kind of a surreal experience. I mean, we had gone, it was a whirlwind of about two months where we were fortunate to win the national championship with Maryland and finally accomplishing that goal. Graduated from college in that same month. And then there was the MLS draft and the Herman Trophy presentation. So it was kind of a a whirlwind two months. I just remember being so excited and honored and, you know, going to Missouri Athletic Club and and going to eat lunch and seeing all the former winners, their pictures on the walls and, you know, hoping my name would be up there, but not really being sure. So it was just a, it was a crazy experience. Talk about hope. Your story is one that I don't think enough people know about. I mean, Gonzalez, Louisiana, you walked on to Maryland, right? I mean, who does that from Louisiana to Maryland? And what was that like? And when did Sasho, one of the most intense coaches you're ever going to see, and a guy we feature, we, we haven't done a show without saying the name Sasho Sarosky, by the way, so you keep that streak alive. What were you thinking? How did you end up at Maryland? The walk-on deal, fill in the blanks. You know, growing up in South Louisiana, not really known as a as a soccer hotbed, you know, especially 10 or 15 years ago. I was fortunate that when I was 16 years old, um, a guy by the name of Gary Butte came down to run the club that I played for in Baton Rouge. And his little brother, Scott Butte, who Maryland fans will know and, and people that follow MLS, um, was on the Maryland team. And so as I was going through the college recruiting process, Gary was telling Sash, hey, you got to take a look at this kid from Louisiana. You know, I think he's got something. You know, we kind of went back and forth, and I didn't really have any other scholarship offers. I had one small offer from a very small school. And then Sash came along, and I had a really good tournament at one of these showcase tournaments where my, my little Louisiana team held our own against some of the big boys. And he's like, you know what, I want you to come to Maryland. And uh, I don't have any scholarship money for you, but I would love to have you come here and, and see how you fit in and, and go to school and develop as a player. And I just jumped at the opportunity to be at a, at a program like that and play for a coach like him and was just really fortunate at the timing of it. But then you went crazy. I mean, you scored 60 goals, 22 your junior year, 22 
your senior year and you won a national championship. So what was it when you're around all these great players? And I want to get to that. I want you to name some of those players you played with so people get it. But what was it where you said, man, I can hang and not only can I hang, I can be the best player in the country. You know, it was just a big, a big learning curve coming from where I was, the level I was playing at, you know, in South Louisiana. You know, I wasn't on any regional teams. I never made, you know, youth national teams or anything like that. So the, the, the speed of play and the quickness was, you know, took a lot getting used to. Like, I didn't start any games my freshman year, but I played in almost all of them. Um, and the thing that I think I had going for me, which kind of, you know, was the only reason I had a, a long career was, you know, I couldn't really dribble very well. I'm terrible at defense. I'm not a great passer, but I can finish. And that was what I was able to do, and that was the craft that I worked on since I was, you know, 13 or 14 years old, is I could finish inside the box. I knew where to be, knew the runs to make, and was just very efficient in the way I, I could score goals. And I think that was what allowed me, when you put a good finisher onto a team that can create chances, and talking about the players that we had, I mean, it's ridiculous. The list of guys like Maurice Adu, Graham Zusi was a freshman when I was a senior. You know, Seth Stamler, who played a long time in MLS, Abe Thompson, Dominic Mediate. I mean, you can go AJ De La Garza, you know, goalkeepers, Chris Seitz. I mean, you can go down the list of guys, Robbie Rogers, guys that I played with that created so many chances for me to score. I was just fortunate to be in the right place at the right time. How proud were your parents when you won that national championship, won the Mac Herman Trophy winner, and then was a top five draft pick for MLS? I think they were they were very very proud just from you know where I came from. You know, they actually started the soccer league in my little town. That's how little soccer there was in Louisiana, you know, twenty or twenty five years ago. But just the the things they taught me, you know, working hard, you know, being dedicated to what you're trying to do, and yeah, I, I'm sure they're very proud. I look back on it; it was a great chance to spend those times with my parents. You know, I used to drive up from Louisiana. 15 hours to Maryland to come watch me play, you know? Where's the Mac Herman Trophy right now, Jason Gary? It is in my living room. When you look at it, knowing what it meant is part of this incredible story, the walk-on and everything else, when you look at it, what's it mean to you? I think it was just a culmination of a lot of hard work and a lot of guys that became great friends of mine, my teammates and coaching staff, and and, you know just pulling in one direction. And I think that was just a byproduct of it. The national championship was the ultimate goal. You know, I was just fortunate enough to get some of those individual goals because of the nature of the position I played. You know, I don't think I was the best player on my own team, you know, in those years. But because I was able to score some goals, I got a lot of the limelight. So just thinking back to all those relationships and the people I met and the experiences I got to have, that's what it means to me. I mean, I actually had to move it up on a high shelf on our bookshelf because my boys were like throwing stuff out of the other day so um well (laughs) you're very humble but you also have that swagger and you also are driven committed and you've taken that now into your professional life what are you doing now jason yeah so i'm running a a financial planning and wealth management firm based here in raleigh north carolina i've uh you know got clients all over the country i work a fair amount with with pro athletes and just in general with people that want to you know want to be strong financially want to have a winning financial life and that's a passion of mine that i've had for a long time since I got my finance degree at Maryland. I've always been, you know, pretty dorky about finance and investing and all those types of things. So I really just kind of carry that over and I'm able to help a lot of people get to where they want to go. Strong message as we end is uh, certainly I know you're committed to your professional life as well and the soccer days are behind you. Although now you got your kids and who knows, could see some future Terrapins as well, perhaps, right? That's right. The oldest is a lefty. I keep telling Sasha, you better get a, a scholarship ready for 
what was that, like 20, 28, something like that? You know? Well, that's, ready. that's when Sasha will have this big stadium up there as well in College Park. So I told him he didn't give me a scholarship as a freshman. He's going to have to pay that. He's going to have to give a full ride to my son if he's going to want to get in there. That's what I'm talking about. Jason, Gary, I had to have you on, man. I just think your story is fantastic. Thanks for all you do still to this day for soccer. I know you get in the booth every once in a while. It's always a pleasure spending time with you. And uh, thanks for being a part of the NSCAA College Soccer Podcast. Jason, Gary. Yeah, Dean, I appreciate the time today and i appreciate you know your commitment to the nscaa and, and everything you're doing to grow the game of soccer here in the u.s it's been a pleasure being on with you when you join the national soccer coaches association of america you join a community who live and breathe the beautiful game just like you do you join a network of individuals who share many of the same issues concerns and questions as you the nscaa is dedicated to serving coaches at every level of the game in a number of ways through advocacy education and service be a part of the coaching community learn more and join at nscaa.com Okay, with D1 in the books, we now move to D2. And I got to tell you, I know I'm bragging a little bit. I apologize, but I'm so excited about the NSCAA's effort to include every level. And when you look at D2 and you're talking about the Final Four this weekend at Swope Soccer Park in Kansas City, Missouri, I am thrilled to tell you that at the men's level, we have now talked to all four coaches in the Final Four, Charleston's Chris Grassi, Rockers' Tony Toko, and then UC San Diego's John Pascal last week, Wingate's Gary Hamill. All four of those coaches have been on, and all four, we wish the best of luck in the Division II College Cup. Then, at D2 Women, early on, we talked to Columbus State's Jay Entlake. He's in the Final Four for D2 Women. Grand Valley State's Jeff Hostler going for three in a row in just three seasons. We also talked to Western Washington's Travis Cannell. And the only other team in the Women's D2 Final is Cootstown University. And the head coach of Cootstown, Eric Bernstein, enters his 10th season at the helm of Cootstown University as he's wrapping up, in fact, his 10th season. He is the winningest coach in program history and has guided the Cootstown women's soccer program to one of the most nationally recognizable programs that KU has to offer. It has appeared in the NSCAA national poll for the past eight seasons, including 2015, and continues to improve upon the high standard it sets for itself. Just as important, and please note this, Academically, Burstein's Golden Bears set a program record in 2016 with 20 PSAC Scholar Athletes. I love that note. Burstein came to Cootstown from Bowling Green State University, where he served as an assistant coach during the 2006 season. Prior to BGSU, Burstein was the head coach at Division III Rutgers University, Newark. Burstein is a 2002 graduate of Richard Stockton College of New Jersey and also holds the NSCAA Goalkeeping Level Three National and youth diplomas. Interesting fact, Cootstown is making its first ever trip to the semifinals. Before this season, the Golden Bears only had one NCAA tournament victory in their history, but this team is flying high as they prepare to face Travis Canal in Western Washington. Cootstown set a program record for wins in a season and tied a program record for shutouts with 13. And with that set up, we welcome Coach Burstein. Coach, thanks for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, we had a little laugh because I'm sure you've heard Cutstown, Cootstown. I mean, you've heard it all, right, as it relates to uh, your fine university. Correct. <laughs> that is true. Tell us uh, where Cootstown is located and what makes it so special, Coach. Uh, well, it, we're about uh, about 70 miles north of, uh, of Philadelphia, uh, closer to the New Jersey border. 
Um, so it, it's a great location for, you know, a, a soccer hotbed. You know, we, we attract kids from uh, the central part of Pennsylvania uh, where the soccer is very good. We, we get interest from kids uh, coming out of New Jersey, again, where the soccer is very good. We're even getting kids, uh, interest from kids in, in, you know, Long Island. So location for us is, uh, is pretty key. But, you know, the campus is, is stunning. Uh, you know, when people step foot on the campus, it's, it's a place that, you know, people can, can see themselves. It's very homey feeling. Um, it's well kept, well maintained. Um, and, and the kids that go to school there, whether they're playing soccer or just general students, are very happy uh, to be at the university. So all those things are a pretty good draw uh, for us once we have a, you know, have a kid on campus. Outstanding setup. Speaking of happy, you had to be thrilled with the win over your conference rival Westchester, three to two, a team that you had lost to three to one at home earlier in the season. That's a signature win, Coach. Yeah, you know it, it, Westchester and us we've had a rivalry, and, and, and the Pennsylvania State Athletic Conference in general, all the teams, um, you know, as, as talented as they are, every game is so tough. But that Westchester uh, rivalry with us over the past few years has been, you know, back and forth. So to to be able to go to Westchester where you know, they were virtually untouchable all season, um, go down two goals and then find a way to get back into it and end up winning the game was uh, just a, an unbelievable uh, experience for the players uh, and, and, and a crowning moment for the program, for sure. Talk about the mentality this week as you prepare to face a very good Western Washington team that's always there. Yeah, it's, 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 it's exciting and overwhelming at the same time. Um, you know, we, we have 17 freshmen, you know, on our team, so... For some of them, this is you know their only experience into the postseason, and you know with some of our returners, you know they're always trying to tell the freshmen, hey, look, you know it's not like this every year. We've got to take our opportunities, you know, when we get them. Um, so I mean, it, there's been a lot of excitement. I mean, obviously the season's gone very well, um, you know, and and now being you know with the Final Four and around some of the, literally the, the best Division Two women's soccer programs uh, in existence uh, is just certainly a uh, an amazing experience. But uh, you know we're taking it one step at a time. We're taking everything in. Uh, you know, we'll have a training session today, just going to keep it lighthearted. And, and uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll have a tactical plan, and then it'll be up to the, the players to execute, which they've done very, very well all season long. Coach, you mentioned those 17 freshmen, three of them without question impact players for sure. Freshman Maddie Moore, freshman Kara Griffith, and freshman Emily Zwierkan, along with senior Elena Curry. Those four have combined for 31 goals, three of them freshmen. What an impact. Yeah, they really, they really have. I mean, it's, it's rare in our conference and at the collegiate level, um, you know, overall, to have freshmen come in and make such a, an, an immediate impact, um, especially the number of freshmen that have made immediate impacts for us this season. So, um, but yeah, we, we were excited about this group when we started the recruiting process. Uh, and as we, you know, began getting commitments for this class, you know, we kind of stepped back and said, you know, this could be one of our better squads. And, and it's turned out to be the case. Now, you were a pretty good goalkeeper, and it's not easy to make the transition from being a goalkeeper to a head coach. In fact, a lot of times they just want to kind of push you in a corner as a goalkeeper and be a goalkeeper coach. How did you make that transition, Coach? Um, I've had a lot of really good um, you know, mentors in my career. You know, My high school coach, John Crowley, uh, gave me the opportunity to run uh, a goalkeeper camp at the high school uh, when I was still a high school student. So that was my first look into coaching and then fell in love with it. Um, then when I went out to, uh, to, to college at the University of Akron, I, I ran into a gentleman by the name of Denzel Antonio who gave me the opportunity to start coaching. Um, and he you know, really kind of brought me along with, um, you know, how to structure sessions and just, been, you know, tons of great advice. Uh, but I've also had coaches, you know, in my youth days who really had such a passion, you know, for coaching. And it kind of just something made me feel like something I wanted to do. Um, you know, Tim Mulqueen, uh, somebody that I certainly want to recognize, but a huge part. 
um, in, in my development as not only a goalkeeper, but as a, as a, as a coach and, and then really fueled my interest for the profession. I love that answer. And I love the fact that uh, you spent time virtually at every level as well. You came to Cootstown from Bowling Green, where you spent one year as an assistant coach. That's D1. But then you were three years the head coach at D3 Rutgers University, Newark. Talk about those two stops. Yeah, um, you know, Rutgers, Newark was, you know, kind of right place at the right time. Uh, I was assisting a, a gentleman I met actually at an NSCAA uh, coaching course. That uh, was my youth diploma out in New Brunswick, New Jersey. I uh, met a gentleman who ended up taking the head coaching job there, was looking for a goalkeeper to come in and be his assistant. He just kind of called me. It was completely out of the blue. I uh, went up to, to Rutgers North, met with him. Uh, he, sp- he spent, uh, you know, a short amount of time there, but then all of a sudden, um, you know, he, he leaves and the AD offers me the position. So, you know, kind of right place, right time there. And then, you know, with Bowling Green, uh, it was just a matter of applying for a position and, um, you know, being fortunate enough to get it. And I, you know, worked with a guy there by the name of Andy Richards, who um, was just a phenomenal person, great coach, taught me a ton and certainly played a major impact, you know, had a major impact on, on me having the success I've had at Kutztown. All right, so now with the D2 Final Four getting set this weekend and having coached at every different level, give us your sense of the quality of play at the D2 level. Well, I mean, you know, I, I think, you know, and I say this to a lot of people, you know, players and parents that we recruit, you know, some of your top Division two programs are better than some of your mid-major D1 programs. Um, and then you're looking at this Final Four, and then the teams that you see at Grand Valley State, Columbus State, Western Washington, even ourselves, you know, very competitive against a lot of these mid-major Division One schools. Um, I, I love the Division Two level. I like the balance. Um, I've enjoyed you know my time at the Division Two level because you are getting a very high quality of soccer. You're you're coaching against incredible coaches, and you have the opportunity to work with very good, very talented soccer players. So um, you know, for, for for us, you know, being here. Uh, at the pinnacle of, of you know of D two season, um, really is a humbling experience, and, and certainly it's it's been you know everything we've ever dreamed it would be and more. And how about coaching twenty PSAC scholar athletes? I mean, I'm sure you're a smart guy, Eric, but you've got some smart women you're coaching. <laughs> yeah, they're certainly smarter than I am. Um, no, they it's uh, it, it's a blessing. I mean, I think women's soccer uh, is a sport that, that, that we typically have very fine student athletes, but it could sound you know, we seem to attract a, a caliber of student um, that's very serious, not just about the athletic side of what they do while they're at the university, but they're very inspired and, and very motivated to do well academically. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm blessed in the fact I really don't have to, um, as much as we worry about them academically, I don't have to worry about them academically because they, they come in with the right mindset. Um, and we've been fortunate enough to have the right kids who focus so much on their academics that it makes the other parts of my job much easier to do. Finally, Coach, tooting our own horn as we talked about the fact you have diplomas from the NSCAA. Last week, sight unseen, I said next week we're going to talk to Eric Bernstein. That'll mean <laughs> we will talk to all eight coaches, men and women, here on this College Soccer Podcast. you got to feel good about what the NSCAA is doing, recognizing not just D1, but every single level across the board. Well, it's amazing. I mean, you know, growing up as a player, um, you know, it wasn't, you know, the NSCAA has grown so much and has played such a, a pivotal role, not just in developing coaches, but developing players and developing future coaches. So it's to have an organization as, you know, such as the NSCAA being so involved in every aspect of the game from the youth level to the college level uh, impacts, you know, not only coaches, but players who you know, aspire to be coaches. So they have a place where they can go get educated, 
get information, have support, have a coaching community. Um, uh, it, it, it's a great thing, uh, and, and I know the players that we've coached that have come through, you know, our program who get into coaching. Um, you know, it's one of the first things I say, like, you know, you know, get out and get to these courses, get out and meet people. It's such a great resource for you, and it has been for me. So, um, you know, we're just really happy to to have an organization like this for for just you know, like I said coaches and players to to uh, to to experience. It's spelled K-U-T-Z-T-O-W-N. Cootstown, Cootstown, Cootstown. Good luck in the Division Two Final Four. Thanks for helping us get to know your program just a little bit better, and we hope to see you at the NSCA convention this January in Los Angeles. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. The 2017 NSCAA Convention will be unlike any before. Taking over the downtown Los Angeles Convention Center January 11th through 15th. Network with over 11,000 peers at one of the education sessions, the extensive exhibit hall, or one of many social functions, including the college coaches reception and the All-American Luncheon. With more space and unique experiences, you won't want to miss out on the largest gathering of soccer coaches and administrators in the world. Register today at NSCAA.com. Okay, now we move to D3. We start with the women Final Four. Messiah, led by Scott Fry, will face Chicago, led by Amy Reifert. And in the other game, it'll be Washington-St. Louis, led by Jim Conlon, taking on Brandeis. All right, so we told you about the double at Brandeis University for men and women. And heading down the stretch of her 37th season, Denise Delamora is the only coach in Brandeis women's soccer history. She began the soccer team in 1980, and Brandeis has developed into one of the most highly regarded Division Three programs in the country. Delamora has led the judges to the postseason in 13 of the past 14 campaigns, including the NCAA tournament in five of the last seven. Now, in 2014, Dallamara earned her 300th career victory, becoming the 14th Division III women's soccer coach to reach the plateau. I do find it somewhat ironic that way back in 1995, Dallamara was honored by the National Soccer Coaches Association of America. She was presented a letter of commendation proclaiming a career of exceptional service to the sport of soccer. That was 1995. Denise, and here you go, still rocking and rolling, getting set to take on Washington St. Louis in the women's Division Three Final Four. Wow, what a career you've had. Must be a special place, Coach. Thank you. It is. Well, tell us what makes it so special. I mean, you started the program 37 years ago, and you're still rocking and rolling. What makes Brandeis such a great place to work? It's a family, and it's a place where um, you're allowed to grow, I guess. And um, it's, a, it's a yes place. For me, I've just, just been a supportive environment, and I've enjoyed it. Well, can't we laugh a little bit about the fact that in 95, they give you this accommodation, maybe thinking, hey, we better get it to her in case she hangs it up. And here, <laughs> and here we are 20-plus uh, years later, and you're still, you're still going strong. Uh, I was on the um, National Soccer Coaches Association, so um, I think it was a, for the work and service I did for that um, group. All right, well, talk about this run. You had a big upset where you won in penalty kicks, I think, in your second game, and then you won your last game, one to nothing, and here you go in the Final Four. How are the girls responding? Are they ready for this big matchup against Washington St. Louis? They are so ready and so excited. They're definitely ready. What's been the key to this team? You know, is it offense, defense, combination, youth, leadership? What do you got going on there? I think it's a combination of everything you just said. It is, it's offense and defense, and it's leadership and it's team chemistry, and they just work hard for each other. 
All right, I'm going to challenge you a little bit. Take me back 37 years ago. Who were you that you said, hey, I can coach this team? And how old were you? You know, I, you're not exactly supposed to ask a woman that, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> I mean, talk about that process, Denise. I was uh, just out of college and was offered the full-time job and coaching and training and teaching. And I was excited to have it. So, uh, and I just worked hard at it. A good student at the game, I guess. Well, I mean, all of us, uh, we kind of love our jobs, but we're always kind of looking over, wondering, hey, is it a little bit greener on the other side over there? Did that ever happen to you? Or were you always like, every day, I'm waking up, I'm proud to go to work and be the women's soccer coach at Brandeis? Uh, pretty much. <laughs> All right, you you know you uh, you were very upfront. You told me this was going to be a challenge for me. You're making me work pretty hard. So, and I, I know you're also on the bus driving down to the Final Four, so that might affect uh, things as well because everybody's kind of sitting around you and everything. But I mean, how is the mentality? We touched on it earlier, but is everybody pretty loose, feeling like, uh, hey, we got nothing to lose. We're on sort of sort of free money here, house money, or what's the mentality? I think you hit it on the nail. It's it's we've worked hard to get here, uh, but they're still they're still ready to go, uh, and they're not finished yet. So. Okay, so look, you're pretty cool at 37 years, but then on the bus right behind you or in front of you, I'm not quite sure as you're driving down the freeway, Michael Colvin, yeah. he's the only coach for the men's team. They're also in the Final Four, so everybody gets to be together. Talk about what it means to have both the women's and the men's team in the Final Four. Because, Denise, if you don't want to talk about your program, at least talk about that. That's pretty cool, right? <laughs> it's really amazing. Uh, the men and the women get along extremely well, and they're really – connected um and they were announcing the score in fact in the, in the william smith game um that the men were up four to one and the women were like oh the men are going to the final four we have to go i love that story so i'm gonna ask michael the same thing i'm gonna say when you hear denise dalamora what do you think so i'm gonna ask denise dalamora when you hear michael coven what do you think a longtime friend a really super person and a great coach when you hear NSCAA, what do you think, Denise? Uh, a great association, a great educational uh, opportunity uh, association for, for everybody. So. Okay, so it was hard to get more than 10-word answers out of you. Now, I when know. you're, when you're in the locker room, though, are you different? Are you fired up? How are you different than this interview? Because you're right. This You told me it was going to be tough. It was tougher than tough, Denise. <laughs> i got to be honest with you. But what are you like in the locker room, Coach? Uh, I, I'm a motivational person, but uh, I'm, a, I'm a person of few words, too. So, but the, clearly, though, clearly you're a leader, though, right? I mean, the team responds to you, and you enjoy that leadership role, right? Sure. <laughs> so, uh, have you ever heard of Greg Popovich? Do you know who that is? I've heard of it. Okay. You, yeah, you need to look up Greg Popovich and his in-game interviews for the NBA. And you mm-hmm. and him went to the same school, by the way. You guys are fantastic with your short answers. I love it, by the way, Denise. Having some fun with you. Any chance if uh, you win this thing and you win Coach of the Year, we'll see you in Los Angeles as part of the NSCA convention? Because if you win Coach of the Year, Denise, you got to go. You don't have to talk, but you got to go to get your trophy. So will you go? Yeah, I'll go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Denise, this was, man, I'm, I'm earning my paycheck this week. Listen, congratulations to the judges. 
And um, here's what I'll do. I'll get Michael to talk more about you than you'll talk about you. How about that? That, that sounds great. All right. Thanks for being with us, and good luck in the Final right, Four, okay? You. All right. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Wow. So Brandeis is pulling the double in women's and men's soccer with both teams playing in the Division Three Final Four. Denise Delamoro, the 37-year head coach of the judges' women's soccer team, told me she was a woman of few words, and she wasn't lying, as you just heard. So that means more time for the Brandeis men's soccer team, who faced Ryan Souders and Calvin College in one semifinal in the men's tournament. John Lowry's St. Thomas team faces Tufts in the other semifinal. And Michael Coven, you get some extra time because in the bus in front of you, Denise kept her answers short and sweet. Mike, so okay. thanks for yeah, thanks for being with us. <laughs> no problem at all. All right, so Denise started the women's program 37 years ago at Brandeis. You started the men's program 44 years ago. That's an amazing run, and that has included a national championship in 1976. You finished yep. second in 84, third in 81, and just a year ago, you became just the 11th man in NCAA history and sixth in Division Three history to win 500 career games, appearing in Sports Illustrated Faces in the Crowd. So I will ask you the same question I asked Denise. What in the world makes Brandeis so special that you would spend almost your entire career there? Well, to be honest with you, I could never get another job. <laughs> <laughs> no, I tell you, um, first of all, there's no football team there. So soccer is a priority sport. And the university always has sort of had a soft spot for the game. And uh, they've supported me personally and professionally very, very well. Um, I enjoy, Brandeis is very academic. And it's a great school academically, and I think it's got its priorities in the right place. Where, and this is what I tell my recruits that you know you're coming to get a quality education first and foremost, and at the same time being part of a, a very good soccer program. And that's what the university believes that these kids don't have to sacrifice anything um, academically to be a good athlete, nor do they have to sacrifice anything athletically to be a good student. Here, everybody works hand in hand. But, again, if it push comes to shove, academics is a top priority, which is my belief, too. I think kids should be going to school to get the best possible education, to go out in the world, to do some good things for themselves. And, you know, that's what I think Brandeis stands for. I love that answer. Okay, Coach, before we talk more about your time at Brandeis and this team in the Final Four, I told Denise, and she said so little – that you would have to fill in the blanks on her and the women's program. Pretty amazing you're both in the Final Four. She called you a great, great friend, a brilliant man, and a brilliant coach. What can you she say about was, What about handsome? Was that ever <laughs> yeah, she, up? she left that out. I, I don't know what that's all about. <laughs> Somehow that never made the, the cut line. But uh, you know, well, she, uh, <laughs> she, she only had ten words per answer, maybe six. But what can you say about her? And, and you must be longer than ten words to describe her and the, the Brandeis women's program, okay? No, she's done a great job there. I mean, she, she started the program there. And um, she actually came in at Brandeis as one of the trainers, the athletic trainers. And there was a push from a bunch of women, athletes, who wanted to start a varsity soccer program there. And she she was a great three-sport athlete in high school in Framingham, which was one of the local high schools near Brandeis. But they, they didn't have soccer. So she sort of picked it up on the club level when she got out of college. And she was well-versed in the game. And she volunteered to take over the job. And, uh, you know, she's done great. If you look, um, even though this is the first time we've been together in the Final Four, 
Over the last 10 years, I mean, we've both been in the Sweet 16 a couple of times. We've both been in the Elite Eight a couple of times. So uh, I think our teams are sort of mirror images of each other that, um, you know, they've both done exceptionally well. I, I think, too, that um, our teams get along really well. We travel together for our UAA games in our conference, the UAA. We play the same schedule. So we'll both fly out to St. Louis to play Wash U, and the women will play first, and men will play second. And next weekend we're in Chicago, and the weekend after that we're in Atlanta. So, I mean, we've developed this relationship by traveling with the uh, the men's and women's teams together, and we're, we're all pretty good friends. And uh, I've watched Denise's training sessions. They're great. Um, she's always had some great assistant coaches, as have I. And, um, you know, I, I think our programs are, you know, they march the same beat. All right. I asked her, even though I wasn't supposed to, how old she was when she started 37 years ago. I can ask you because you're a man. 44 <laughs> years ago you started. How old were you and how did you get the job and start it? And kind of tell us uh, what took place there because I'm very interested okay. in that. I'll tell you exactly. Uh, first of all, I'll be 70 in January. So I've been here 44 years. So what does that make me? How old was I started? I'm not good in math. Yeah, I went to Ohio U, so that's a tough question. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, so I'll be 70 uh, in January, and I've been here 44 years. 26. But the way this evolved, I was playing soccer and coaching at a local high school, Newton South High School, for a couple of years. And the Brandeis job came open late. They had uh, a guy named Bob Gustafson, who's a good guy, he was coaching three varsity sports, soccer, wrestling, and lacrosse. Lacrosse being his primary sport. And uh, at that point, Brandeis, across the board, their athletic teams were horrendous. Everything, 0-20 in basketball, 5-20 and 20 in baseball. I mean, their teams were bad. Well, they brought in a guy named Nick Rodas to become the athletic director and to change things around a bit. Nick was a great football and baseball player at Harvard. He was, I believe he was Bobby Kennedy's roommate, very close friends with the Kennedys. And when Jack Kennedy was president, he brought Nick to Washington, D.C. to run a bunch of international athletic events. So he's a really good guy. Brandeis hired him to be the athletic director with the idea we want to really enhance our athletic teams. I went to a very small school in Springfield called American International College where I played soccer. And then, like I said, I graduated. I got my master's degree at Springfield College. I was still playing, coaching locally. So Brandeis' job opened up, and I threw my name in the hat. It opened up late. It opened up like three weeks before preseason was going to start in August. A bunch of my friends said, don't take that job. Brandeis is a dead end athletically. <laughs> They're all very bright kids there. The school puts no emphasis on athletics. You're going to go nowhere if, in fact, you take that job. Well, Nick Rodas turned out to be an old football and basketball coach at AIC. Not when I was there. We never overlapped, but we knew the same people. As soon as he saw I was from AIC and he was under a deadline, he had to get somebody quick. <laughs> Even though I was so young, he just threw me a job. He said, it's yours if you want it. So I, uh, I took it. And I'm certainly glad I didn't listen to my friends who told me not to take it 45 years ago or whatever it was. But, and it's been great. Um, Nick, unfortunately, passed away 
four or five years ago, but he was the athletic director through my formative years at Brandeis and really helped me to become a good coach and supported me really well and um, sort of got me on my feet as far as coaching goes. And I've been pretty, pretty darn happy. I've been offered way back there, 25 years ago, you know, you thought, okay, maybe I want to go on and be a Division One coach. I've had success at Division Three levels. I explored other places. I was offered a couple of other jobs. I just, you know, if you're happy, why leave? And to be honest with you, none of the schools that I looked at emphasized the game of soccer as much as Brandeis did and supported me. as. I don't think they would have supported me as much as I get support at Brandeis. So I stayed, and I'm very thankful I did so. This is why I love doing this program. That story right there, Mike Coven, was absolutely brilliant, tying in the Kennedys as well, and your background in college and how you got the job. And 70 years old now, sounds like in your voice, I mean, you could go another 20, in fact. So you're you're clearly loving it. Thanks for kind of laying that groundwork. I guess I have one thing wrong. You didn't actually start the program then. You just kind of put it on the map. No, right? I, yeah, I just I, I didn't start. They were horrible. They had a series <laughs> of different coaches every other year. It seemed like they had a couple of different coaches. And, you know, they were going nowhere. Um when I first got there at Brandeis, it used to have it's called the Wien Scholarship, which they gave full scholarships to international students who were brilliant. And um, the team was comprised primarily of these Wien students, and they didn't even like to come to practice. They were very, very bright, but they never took it seriously. And then I, uh, I came in and I sort of added some discipline that we had to practice every day, that if it rained, we still have to practice, that we were playing more than six games a year. And some of them stuck with it. Most of them left. But um, what happened with me, too, when I got there, um, four guys showed up with me. They were freshmen. There was a guy by the name of Robbie Muller, who was a forward, Murray Greenberg, who was a goalkeeper, Peter Schachter, who was a defender, and Michael Shannon, who was a center midfielder, right up the spine. They just showed up at Brandeis as freshmen, and they had all been very successful high school players. We got together, and we figured, okay, let's, let's turn this program around, the five of us, myself and those four players. And I knew I had a nucleus right there. And they said, you know, what are our goals going to be? I said, let's win a national championship. In their senior year, we won the national championship. So, um, um, yeah, that was the start of it all. Well, that was an incredible time in 1976. So fast forward now to 2016. You're back in the Final Four. Describe your team. What is this team all about, and what do you got to do to beat Calvin? Yeah, I tell you, we, um, we started off slow. The last five or six years, we've been very, very, very strong. And... You know, we win one, we lose one game, two games a year. We win the UAA. We've been great, and we sort of, you know, slid right into the NCAA tournament and had relative success. This year's team was different. Over the last two years, we've really lost some good players to graduation. Uh, a couple of All Americans. One of our players last year, Connor Lanahan, was the D3.com Defender of the Year. So we lost some good players to graduation. This year's team has some good players. It had Josh has Josh O'Sell back. He was the second team All American last year as a center midfielder. But we we were off. The first five or six games of the year, it just we didn't have the continuity of the flow that we normally had. We did have a couple of bad injuries. Average Ostremski came in with a uh he had a concussion and then he got whacked in the head again, so we didn't even know if he was gonna be able to play this year. Um Zach Vieira, who's another great forward for us, he had 
what they thought might have been mono. He had a hard time getting it together. Josh Ferguson, midfielder, had a double hernia operation before. So we were missing some, some key components, but still the flow wasn't there. Something was off. And um, we had a rough... Our first two games were great. We beat Haverford and John Carroll from Cleveland, who both ended up in the NCAA tournament. And then we hit a lull. We didn't do well at all. And uh, I didn't know. I had my doubts about this team. We played Wheaton College, who's one of our big rivals down here. We were up 4-1 to one with 20 minutes left, and we lost 5-4. Uh, to four. That was the lowest point of my career almost. If, uh, they had to keep all the sharp instruments in my house. My wife had to keep them away from me that night. But uh, then what happened was we started to play better, and we got these guys back healthy. And uh, we went out to Chicago, who's one of our big rivals in the league, and they were undefeated and ranked number one in the country. And we ended up losing in sudden death overtime, but played them very, very even. And that's when I think the turnaround started. I think then we realized, hey, we're playing with the number one team in the country. We lost, but we played them even. And then I think the kids realized that we could be something special. And we went on a roll. We just started beating good-ranked teams. We... um, in our league, you know, we had one weekend when we beat Rochester and Wash U. You know, we really started to play well. We beat Clark, who was had only one loss regionally down here, and we believed in ourselves, and we just kept on winning, <laughs> and um, here we are. All right, fantastic. Denise Delamora with 10-word answers, and Michael Coven with 10,000-word answers. I love it. Well, finally, uh, ending it with, um, you know, 70 years young, so it looks like you're going to keep going. The NSCAA is also an organization, I think, celebrating 75 years. What has that organization meant to you? Yeah, it's been great because I think I've been, uh, you know, a member right from day one. So, um, you know, they, they, they organize everything. I mean, the All-Americans, the All-Regions, the national and regional rankings, uh, they do it all. And, and every year you can see their, their convention every year. It gets more and more. It's fun, and it's uh, worthwhile, and you can pick up a lot of knowledge from the clinics and stuff. It's I think the NSA is great. It's um it runs the whole game in the United States and I think it's terrific. Quick answer, you're going against Ryan Souders, a young whippersnapper, he's got all kinds of great energy as well. We've talked about talked to him on this program. What does that do for you? Does that galvanize you to face these young whippersnapper coaches? Oh yeah, sure. I got uh, my associate head coach is uh, Gabe Margolis, who's been with me for ten years. He is going to take over the job when I leave, eventually when I leave, or they throw me at the door. <laughs> but he's a young whippersnapper too, so I got him back in me. He's got my back. <laughs> but um, I- I've seen the films of, of Calvin, and they play like we do. We we play. We like to keep the ball. I think we play a very sophisticated brand of soccer. Um, they play very, very similar. So I think it should be a great game. It should be fun. Uh, the weather's supposed to be great. Um, the school is really excited. We've got so many students driving down to Virginia. We've got all sorts of administrators from the university. The president of the university showed up in our locker room last night to talk to both the men's and the women's teams. So it's a very, very exciting time uh, for Brandeis soccer. And, and you know, I told these guys that, uh, you know, my team that, how many athletes during the course of their career, no matter what sport they're playing, can say that they were a part of a Final Four? And this is a, you know, could be a once-in-a-life opportunity for these guys, and 
want to enjoy it. Obviously, we want to win a national championship. We want to play attractive soccer. But I want this to be a, a real fun, positive experience for the boys. Well, the judges are both there. Here's the deal. We're four for four in talking to national championship coaches this year. We promised our listeners that if you win a national championship, we will talk to you after you win it. So if Brandeis pulls the double, that means okay. Denise gets one minute, you get 19. So be ready for that next week as well. <laughs> I look okay? forward to that. All right. so you're going to be at the games? You're at the games? I won't be at the games, but I'll be following along, watching, and pulling for the judges. Coach, thanks for being with us on the NSCAA no College Soccer Podcast. Thank you very much. By being a member of the NSCAA, you are a part of the world's largest network of soccer coaches. Here, you can find like-minded people passionate about bettering themselves to help better their players and ultimately to better the game. We end the program talking NAIA soccer and the 2016 NAIA women's soccer. Second round action was played on Monday and Tuesday. Eight teams punched their ticket to the NAIA Women's Soccer Quarterfinals. These teams include Spring Arbor of Michigan, Vanguard of California, Columbia of Missouri, Northwestern Ohio, Northwest of Washington, Reinhardt of Georgia, Baker from Kansas, and Benedictine also from Kansas. Day one consisted of upsets by number 13 seed Baker and number 12 seed Benedictine. The Wildcats defeated William Carey of Mississippi 2-1. to Vanguard defeated Martin Methodist of Tennessee one to nothing. Defending national champion number one seed Spring Arbor, Michigan, blew past number sixteen Cumberland, Tennessee four to zero. Upsets by number fifteen seed Columbia, number fourteen seed Reinhardt highlighted day two action. That's a quick look at NAIA women's soccer. Moving to NAIA men's soccer, eight teams have also punched their ticket to the NAIA quarterfinals. Those programs consist of number one seed Hastings from Nebraska, number eight West Virginia Tech, number four Northwestern Ohio, Grandview from Iowa, number two Ryle Grand from Ohio, number seven Union of Kentucky, number 14 William Carey of Mississippi, and number six Davenport of Michigan. Top-seeded Hastings was able to remain unbeaten, advancing on penalty kicks over number 16-seed Marymount, California. A pair of goals in just over a six-minute span in the first half gave West Virginia Tech its first win at the final site in program history over number 9-seed Mid-America Nazarene from Kansas. Be sure to check out NAIA.org for the latest scores and updates on all the national championship sites. And if you need more NAIA soccer news, check us out on social media and follow us on Twitter. Facebook, and Instagram using the hashtag NAIA Soccer. That concludes episode 14 of the NSCAA College Soccer Podcast. Thanks for listening. Be with us next week when we hopefully talk to the champions of the D2 men and women, D3 men and women, the D1 Women's College Cup, and let you know about the final four of the Men's College Cup and mix in your champions as well for the NAIA. For everybody at the NSCAA, I'm Dean Linke. Thanks for listening. When you join the National Soccer Coaches Association of America, you join a community who live and breathe the beautiful game just like you do. You join a network of individuals who share many of the same issues, concerns, and questions as you. The NSCAA is dedicated to serving coaches at every level of the game in a number of ways through advocacy, education, and service. Be a part of the coaching community. Learn more and join at NSCAA.com.